Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode thirteen. Up and Adam. In this episode, we shall meet John Dalton and his new atomic theory. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. By the close of our last episode, just past the year eighteen hundred, chemists were debating how true was the law of definite proportions and its relation to the atomic view of matter. Matter seems to be made of atoms. At least, chemical reactions seem to work more reasonably if you assume atoms exist. You can imagine assuming atoms that there would be times when only one atom of element A would join with only one atom of element B and make a molecule, Latin for a small mass. You can also imagine that different atoms weigh different amounts, so that atom A has three times the mass of atom B, but they join in a one-to-one ratio. So that the chemical AB has a definite proportion of three masses of A and one mass of B, everything seems reasonable. John Dalton, a chemist born in Cumberland, England, in 1766 to a Quaker family, distinguished himself in a number of ways. His early education included mentors who were meteorologists, and so he began recording and observing weather phenomena in the Lake District. A hilly area in northwest England, where he clearly saw layers of clouds. This led to an interest in gases, and his agreement with the view that air was eighty percent nitrogen plus twenty percent oxygen. And yet the question arose: Why didn't the two gases, nitrogen and oxygen, with different densities, separate out into two different layers in the atmosphere? His studies gained him entry into the Manchester Literary and Philosophical Society. Where he presented a paper, the first in history, describing color blindness that he and his brother had, which is often called Daltonism to this day in Britain. An interesting sidebar to color blindness is that Dalton asked that his eyes be preserved after his death to make an examination for medical research. He believed that the vitreous humor in his eyes was tinted blue, denying him the ability to see reds and greens properly. DNA analysis of his eyes in 1994 showed otherwise that he and his brother had a genetic defect in common with others of red-green color blindness. By 1801, Dalton's interest in gases led him to publish the law of partial pressures. That is, the pressure of each gas in a mixture contributes a proportion of the total gas pressure in the mixture. So, for air which is about 80% nitrogen and 20% oxygen, this means that nitrogen contributes 80% of the total air pressure, and oxygen contributes 20% of the total air pressure. For Dalton, the explanation was that like atoms of gases repel each other, while unlike atoms are irrelevant. And so, his answer about why don't the gases separate into distinct layers in the atmosphere was answered. This was based on Lavoisier's view of caloric or heat. Lavoisier regarded heat as a layer around each atom, which expanded when hotter. Rather than expansion, Dalton first suggested that caloric repelled other atoms encapsulated with caloric, increasing the pressure. 
But gases mix well, so Dalton adjusted his idea so that like atoms with caloric repel like atoms only. It turns out that this explanation is false. However, though the law of partial pressures itself is true for most everyday conditions, what caused atoms to attract and repel is bound up with this nebulous idea of affinity I mentioned in the last episode. But Dalton's interest in gases seemed to lead him even further. He found that beyond the law of definite proportions from Proust, elements can combine in multiple ways. Giving different proportions with different properties for each product. For example, let's look at carbon and oxygen. By weight, carbon combines in three parts with eight parts by weight of oxygen to give fixed air or carbon dioxide. But three parts by weight of carbon and four parts by weight of oxygen make carbon monoxide. These multiple proportions of elements in combination take small whole numbers. So that one compound has eight parts of oxygen by weight, and the other has four parts. Dalton published his law of multiple proportions in 1803. This works very nicely with atomic theory. So, with carbon monoxide and dioxide, imagine that an oxygen atom is one and one third times the weight of a carbon atom. Then, carbon monoxide has one carbon atom and one oxygen atom. And carbon dioxide has one carbon atom plus two oxygen atoms. Therefore, Dalton mentioned Democritus's early atomic theory in his paper and published an actual table of atomic weights for the elements, the first in history. In a podcast, I have to describe it, so I will read part of the table. Hydrogen is one, azote we call it nitrogen is five, carbon is five point four, oxygen is seven, phosphorus is nine. Sulfur is thirteen, and so on. Let's talk a bit about the symbols Dalton used for atoms. Dalton used a circle with a dot in the middle for a hydrogen atom. Nitrogen was a circle with a vertical line dividing the circle in two. Carbon is a filled-in black circle. Oxygen is an empty round circle or O. Phosphorus was an early version of a Mercedes-Benz logo, a circle divided into three pizza slices. Sulfur was a circle divided into quadrants. How did Dalton then symbolize water? It was a circle with a dot touching an empty circle. That is, one atom of hydrogen combined with one atom of oxygen. We now know that there are really two atoms of hydrogen in water, but this was still a matter of confusion for Dalton. The confusion would also affect accurate atomic weights and molecular weights for many, many years. For ammonia. Dalton wrote a dotted circle plus a circle with a vertical line, or one atom of hydrogen plus one atom of nitrogen. Again, the ammonia formula was wrong, for ammonia is really one nitrogen plus three hydrogens. But we now have the first step to molecular formulas many of you know from basic chemistry classes. An early convert to Dalton's ideas was Thomas Thompson, who published a chemistry textbook. A system of chemistry in five volumes, which by its third edition in 1807 included a short table of relative density, a way of saying atomic weight, for atoms on page 428. John Dalton's revolutionary ideas have been summarized as follows: One, atoms cannot be divided into smaller bits; they cannot be created or destroyed. Two. All atoms of the same element are identical and different from atoms of other elements. Three, 
atoms combine in small whole number combinations with each other. The second and third statements are the new part of his atomic theory. See how alchemy and transmutation are stopped cold by these ideas. If atoms are unchangeable, then transmutation is impossible. Dalton used macroscopic observations about chemical behavior to infer microscopic properties of chemicals. And though Lavoisier was about two thousand years after Democritus and other Greek philosophers, Dalton's work was only nine years after Lavoisier's murder. Such is the power of Francis Bacon's scientific method. How did natural philosophers react to Dalton? With skepticism, physicists did not agree at all. The scheme was laughable to them, for we have no idea what atoms are, what makes them combine in particular ways, and what this identicalness of elemental atoms even means. And thus did the nineteenth-century dispute between chemists and their chemical atoms, which were convenient for reaction bookkeeping, and physicists who demanded quality proof that atoms were even real, begin. Over the course of the nineteenth century, many textbooks withdrew from the dispute over the reality of chemical atoms and refused to mention atomic theory. For chemists, though, the atom did make sense in light of how chemical reactions worked. You could balance chemical equations and see how atoms moved between reactants and products. You could make a decent guess at how much each type of atom weighed. Circumstantial evidence was still evidence of a sort. What about chemical formulas? Dalton generally assumed the smallest whole number for compounds like water and ammonia, a one-to-one ratio. But was that even correct? How could anyone know? Was water really one oxygen and one hydrogen, two oxygens and one hydrogen, two oxygens and two hydrogens, or something else? We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior. With your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. English chemist William Prout suggested that Given how elements' atomic weights generally seem to be integer multiples of hydrogen, maybe all atoms are constructed of hydrogen atoms in various combinations. Unfortunately, Dalton's measurement of carbon as 5.4 times the weight of hydrogen was a problem. 5.4 is not a whole number multiple of one. Oh well. The French chemist Joseph Gay-Lussac. Gave a glimmer of hope with his research on gases. That big topic of the day, he published the result in 1808 that gases react chemically in small whole number amounts, very like the law of multiple proportions and this new atomic theory. Here is one example. You might guess that you combine one liter of hydrogen and one liter of nitrogen to get one liter of ammonia vapor, but no. Gay-Lussac found that you need three liters of hydrogen to combine completely with one liter of ammonia vapor. 
The implication is that volumes of gas are proportional to the number of gas atoms involved, or the law of combining volumes. He derived the formulas for the oxides of nitrogen using this method. From such formulas, you can figure out the atomic weights of the elements involved. Around this time, the English chemist Humphrey Davy discovered chlorine. We will meet Davy soon. So Gay-Lussac found the formula for hydrochloric acid: one atom of hydrogen and one atom of chlorine. Dalton was aghast. He argued that, concerning water, one volume of oxygen is heavier than one volume of water, which contains hydrogen and oxygen. Adding a hydrogen to oxygen to make water makes the compound lighter than oxygen by itself. That's ridiculous. So equal volumes of different gaseous compounds certainly cannot have equal numbers of atoms, or so he said. There was a major advance in practical chemistry in the past decade. Benjamin Franklin. One of the acknowledged leaders in electrical theory in the mid 1700s decided by 1752 that electricity consists of a fluid that flowed from the positive pole to the negative pole. He also gave us the terms plus and minus associated with electricity. Alessandro Volta of Italy then publicly announced his so-called electric pile on March 20th, 1800. It's a pile because it is a stack or pile. Of alternating discs of silver and zinc, separated by cloth discs soaked in salt water, we can also call it the first electric battery. What Volta showed was that a chemical reaction can make electricity, previously only available by rubbing items together. Six weeks later, Englishman William Nicholson and Anthony Carlisle did the reverse: use electricity to run a chemical reaction. In their case, their electric pile was made of 17 silver discs alternating with 17 zinc discs connected with platinum wires into a flask of water. At the immersed wire connected to the zinc pole, the negative end, tiny bubbles of hydrogen formed. At the immersed wire connected to the silver pole, the positive end, tiny bubbles of oxygen appeared. Nicholson and Carlisle decomposed water into its component elements. By carefully looking at the amounts of hydrogen and oxygen evolved from the decomposition of water, it turns out that hydrogen bubbles have twice the volume of oxygen bubbles. So, if Gay-Lussac is right about volumes of gas proportional to the number of atoms, we can guess that water really has two atoms of hydrogen per atom of oxygen. We know that one part by weight of hydrogen combines with eight parts by weight of oxygen in water. Thus. One atom of oxygen weighs eight times as two atoms of hydrogen. If we use Dalton's arbitrary value of one for the weight of a hydrogen atom, we get sixteen for the weight of one oxygen atom. With a ready supply of electricity at hand, a new branch of chemistry called electrochemistry began to zoom ahead. Humphrey Davy proposed that there was an electrical explanation for attraction and repulsion of atoms. Davy opined that all atoms from a particular element had the same electrical charge and thus repel each other. In a very vague way, Davy was correct, but not at all how he imagined it. But we shall have to wait for another century for this to become clear. In the meantime, affinity continued to be a decidedly unexplainable property.
Meanwhile, another in a long line of Swedish chemists began to make a name for himself. Juns Jakob Berzelius, working with his assistant Anna Sundström, spent a lot of time improving Dalton's attempts at atomic weights. Instead of assigning hydrogen a relative weight of one, he decided on oxygen as 100. But no matter what he measured, he could not get atomic weights as nice, neat integers or multiples of hydrogen. It seemed that Prout's hypothesis that all atoms are built from hydrogens was a failure. Dalton did eventually get Berzelius to agree to use hydrogen as a standard of one, however, which is basically what we do today. Dalton's symbols for elements, little circles with lines, designs, and letters inside, however, did have a competitor from Berzelius. In 1813, Berzelius decided to use one or two-letter symbols for elements. Their names derived from Latin, so gold or aurum in Latin became Au. Silver or argentum in Latin became Ag. Sodium or natrium in Latin became Na. Mercury or hydrargyrum in Latin became Hg. Iron or ferrum in Latin was Fe. Tin or stannum in Latin was Sn. And copper or cuprum in Latin became Cu. If you were a printer publishing textbooks and journals about chemistry, which would you prefer: weird circles with designs inside, or standard letters? Within a couple of decades, Berzelius's scheme of letters as symbols won out as being the easier, to Dalton's chagrin, and that's what we still use today. Depicting compound atoms or molecules, as we call them, and following chemical equations also became much easier in Berzelius's symbolic notation. Dalton's comment in 1837, when the British Association for the Advancement of Science recommended Berzelius's two-letter symbols, was: "Berzelius's symbols are horrifying. A young student in chemistry might as soon learn Hebrew as make himself acquainted with them." They appear like a chaos of atoms. Why not put them together in some sort of order? They equally perplex the adepts of science, discourage the learner, as well as to cloud the beauty and simplicity of the atomic theory. The first decades of the 19th century saw an expansion of Dalton's list of elements. Let's explore how that took place. Through Boyle's definition of an element, plus Lavoisier's list of elements. Chemists could begin to analyze commonalities between chemicals. One of those commonalities were those substances that were clearly not elements, but no one could isolate the constituent elements. In particular, we refer to oxides, elements combined with oxygen, plus that ill-defined quality called affinity. To free an element from its oxide, you had to remove the oxygen from the oxide, leaving behind the element. How might you free the oxygen? You can find an element that had a stronger affinity for oxygen, so the oxygen leaves the oxide and sticks to the other element. For example, with iron ore, basically iron oxide, you can use carbon as the stickier element. Heat iron oxide with coke, a fairly pure form of carbon, and the oxygen leaves the iron and sticks to the carbon, making carbon oxides, monoxide and dioxide. As gases, they just vaporize away, leaving iron metal. Let's consider lime, the chemical, not the fruit. Lime is chemically like an oxide, but what element does the combining with oxygen? 
and what element is stickier to oxygen has a greater affinity than what's in lime. No chemist could figure this out, except Humphrey Davy. Instead of a stickier element with a higher affinity for oxygen, Davy tried this newfangled electric pile because, hey, it worked to remove the oxygen from hydrogen in water. He built a massive electric battery of 250 plates, but still couldn't pull oxygen away from the unknown element. All he did was separate water. Water seemed to be the problem. You need to build up a system to separate an element from oxygen without water as a solvent. So he heated up the substances to melt them, and then applied electric current to this liquid without water. It worked, and spectacularly so. On October sixth, eighteen o seven, he melted potash and got tiny drops of a metal he named potassium. In mid-October, he did the same to soda and got sodium metal. The following year, he got magnesium, strontium, and barium metals all from their oxides. And what about this mysterious lime? That worked too, for he got calcium metal from that. Davy was so successful in finding new elements that he held the record for a hundred fifty years as the person with the most discoveries to his name. This whole scheme came to be called electrolysis, meaning electrically breaking apart. Humphrey Davy from Cornwall, the peninsula in southwest England, and in particular Penzance, later made famous by Gilbert and Sullivan's *The Pirates of Penzance*, was a showman. Here is a sample of music from that comic opera performed by Librivox. A hundred fifty years later, the mathematician and musician Tom Lehrer used this melody to write a song about all the elements, which is obviously appropriate for this podcast. I am the better model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the facts historical from Marathon to Waterloo and order categorical. I'm very well acquainted too with matters mathematical. I understand equations both the simple and quadratical. Above, I know my theorem. I'm teeming with a lot of news. Lot of news. Lot of news. Lot of news. Hmm. Aha! Got it. <clears throat> With many chipper facts about the square of the hypotenuse. With many chipper facts about the square of the hypotenuse. With many chipper facts about the square of the hypotenuse. With many chipper facts about the square of the hypotenuse. Davy had a small laboratory in the late 1790s where he investigated the effects of breathing nitrous oxide, now often called laughing gas. His report, published in 1800, made his scientific reputation. And so he became the official lecturer at the new Royal Institution in London, known as a lively presenter of current chemical topics of the day. Another of his discoveries was that chlorine gas is an element, doesn't contain oxygen, and therefore its name at the time, oxymuriatic acid, was wrong. This disproved Lavoisier's contention that oxygen is a necessary component of acids. Davy nearly killed himself when breathing what's called water gas. A mixture of water vapor and carbon monoxide gas. Perhaps some of these rather dangerous experiments caused his health to fail after 1808. He regained health slowly and probably not completely for the rest of his life. Berzelius, also well known by this time, took Davy's idea of electrical sources for chemical affinity and decided that chemical affinity existed because there are electrical charges on all atoms. Oxygen is always negative. And metals are always positive; hence, they attract and combine to make oxides, which are electrically neutral. But 
We should note that this idea disallows two like atoms, say two hydrogen atoms or two oxygen atoms, to combine to form a molecule. How could two negative atoms attract? Yet Berzelius did create a rational method for writing chemical composition based on the electrical theory. He wrote the positive atom first, then a plus sign, then the negative atom. So for copper oxide, he wrote Cu plus O. Later, he stopped using the plus sign and merely wrote CuO. Multiple atoms of one element were superscripts, so S two superscript O three superscript was hyposulfuric acid. In 1834, Justice Liebig, whom we shall meet later, changed the superscripts to subscripts as we use today. And imagine all the mysterious things that electricity might do if it could pull compounds apart. Electricity was in popular culture in Europe, even in literature. Think about what some regard as the first science fiction story, Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, written by Mary Shelley exactly at this time, 1818. Electricity in her story gives life to human body parts. In our next episode. We shall talk more about the Swedish chemist Jöns Jakob Berzelius, his occasional hard-headedness, but also his devotion to determining accurate atomic weights. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.